Welcome back, World History. Now, if you remember, this is going to be a continuing audio version of World War One. And if you remember in the first part, I talked a little bit about the lead-up to World War One and the effects of imperialism and nationalism and just internal strife within the countries and militarism and all those kind of things. And then we led up to the spark that went boom that caused all of World War I to get going, and that was the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand. And then we started talking about the weapons and tactics of World War One, and we talked about some mortars and gas and machine guns and all that. And we left off, I said I was going to be talking about trench warfare, and hey, when you know it, that's where we're picking up from right now. So let's start talking about trench warfare. And just to give you a little idea of what was going on before World War I, um, most battles would be fought in lines of men, uh, just kind of marching towards other people, and then there's another group of men, and they're marching towards one another. When they get close enough, they fire their guns, they go boom, and then people die, and some people live, and then the, one, the side that has the most people living, they usually win. So that's how things used to be. Um, however, now that we have all these improved firearms, we have artillery, we have all these cannons and howitzers and machine guns and gas and all this, uh, this style of fighting did not seem to work the best. So now they start moving over to trench warfare, where they're essentially digging in. So they found out that they could hold positions better and longer with just a simple hole in the ground than some men standing, you know, out in the open. So trenches started very, very simple, just kind of holes in the ground, but then they started to grow. Then they started to connect, and then they became more elaborate, and they had different levels and different purposes for uh, different levels. And um, both sides dug in and just kept going for miles and miles in each direction. And the area between the two trenches are the two different sides, the, the groups. So it would be like maybe the Germans on one side, the French on the other. That area between those two trenches was known as no man's land. That was generally 100 to 300 yards. And yeah, no man's land, you weren't going to live in very long if you got stuck in that area. It was like death zone. So people would have to run across it to get to the other side. Didn't work out too well most of the time. And just to give you an idea, most of the trenches had three different lines that were part of that, that trench system. And the British trenches were generally around 8 to 16 feet deep. Um, the German were a minimum of 12 feet deep, generally. Um, and they were a fair amount more complex than the British ones. And, you know, both of them covered the ground with planks of wood. This was both sides. And this was to keep out um, water. And we'll talk about why you don't want water, mud, um, a whole bunch in your trenches. We'll get there. Um, and both, of, both sides used a ton of barbed wire. And that is um, kind of like a, a, a fencing that you put up that has, like, really like sharp spikes on it and it, it makes people it makes it difficult for people to run across and get through that area because you get hung up sometimes and um, also people would use sandbags as kind of temporary walls and sometimes there was these little areas between these sandbags where people could shoot out or, or look out if they had a periscope or they could shoot out if they had a periscope rifle or maybe they would just put their head up through there and, and shoot out through these little holes and these were called loopholes so kind of an interesting little term there for you. And moving on here, um, like I said, the water that they put the wood planks down to keep the water out. All right, so, I mean, that was something they did to try to help. But, yeah, sanitary conditions in these trenches were terrible. Um, 
They had a lot of diseases were common, including dysentery, typhus, cholera. Um, infections were very common because antibodies were, weren't really around yet as far as like giving someone antibiotics uh, were not around yet. So um, a lot of deaths resulted as like an injury that turned gangrene. And gangrene is like decaying, rotting away flesh that would get infected. Um, yeah, if you got wounded, um, so it wasn't going to end well usually. Uh, Germans found statistically 15% of leg wounds ended in death, while 25% of arm wounds um, ended in death. And the reason for this is the arms are a little bit closer to vital organs, so if infection can set in, it could go to other areas. And that water thing I mentioned, uh, prolonged exposure to damp and cold conditions can le lead to trench foot. And this is um, causes numbness, red and blue coloration, swelling and blisters, and open sores to the feet. It looks pretty gross. I'd show you some pictures, but this is an audio podcast. Let's just say it's nasty. All right, let's start talking about one of my favorites, tanks. So the German tank, and my pronunciation, terrible here, but I'll go the best I can, the Schwerkampfwagen. A7V, uh, first used in the spring of 1917, uh, was powered by two Daimler engines, 100 horsepower each. It had six water-cooled machine guns. Remember, we brought up water-cooled uh, machine guns in our last podcast there. We talked about how we did not want the barrel to warp. And one 5.7-meter so-called gun, which was just basically a huge front gun. Remember, this is centimeters, so still a pretty big gun, but nowhere near Big Bertha. All right, so these tanks... They had difficulty trouble, uh, uh, crossing trenches, uh, mechanically unreliable, got stuck often, and not as fast as other tanks, the Schwerkamp wagon, that is. Um, and just to give you a little bit more about it, um, it was over 7 meters long, roughly 3 meters wide, and a height of around 3 meters, um, and 20 millimeter thick armor plating. Uh, it had a speed of around 3.1 miles per hour uh, cross country and 9.3 miles per hour on roads. A crew of 16 soldiers and two officers. Um, commander, mechanic, 12 in infantrymen, driver, mechanic, signaler, and two artillerymen. And um, I mean, these tanks were the, we'd never seen these before. They they were they were kind of called land ships because they were just they looked like giant boats that were on on land and they were coming towards you. Um, so that was the German one, the Schwerkampfwagen, and here's the British one, which is a little bit uh, easier to pronounce for me. It's the German, uh, I'm sorry, the British Mark I, uh, built in the summer of 1915, had two naval six-pounder guns mounted on it, two removable guns uh, from the front and back, two Hotchkiss machine guns. Um, inside was not very healthy, uh, high in carbon monoxide and fuel vapors and oil. Uh, temperatures could get up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and in all this, the troops had to, you know, wear gas masks and protective headgear because they didn't want bullet fragments and gases coming inside and killing them all while they're inside. So, uh, very disorienting, not the best. Um, eight millimeter thick armor, so not as good as the German one. Crew of eight, commander, driver, two gearsmen, and four gunners, and four miles an hour cross-country speed. And later on, they did improve on it with the uh, Mark V. Uh, this one could go 8 miles per hour, uh, much more maneuverable, more reliable mechanically, one driver, and 29.5 tons. Now, these tanks were obviously used for um, kind of invading other trenches and closing area because they were kind of unstoppable, and the infantry would actually kind of like run behind them. Well, run, you know, with as fast as they were going, you would just kind of walk behind them and use them as like rolling shields. Now, 
mentioning these infantry soldiers, uh, we already talked about, you know, that, oh, you know, we have a lot of guns and stuff like that. But let's talk about grenades. So um, the first grenade we're going to talk about is the German model grenade, the Model 24 grenade, known as the Stielhandgranat, um, which basically translates to stick hand grenade. Um, and it got the nickname stick grenade, go figure, or potato masher. And it literally looked like a stick with a explosive on the end of it. Go ahead, stick grenade. And there was a cord that ran down the handle, and you would pull that cord, and it had a five-second fuse. You'd throw it, and it could be typically thrown around 30 to 40 yards, and it would go boom five seconds later. Um, and just comparatively, it was actually a little bit better than the British Mills grenade, which could be thrown around 15 yards, people figured. Um, and the advantage of it was the distance, and it could not roll back easily if it was thrown like up a hill that might roll back on you. And once again, I did refer to the British grenade, so let's talk about that. And that was called the Mills Bomb, nicknamed the Number 5, because it was the fifth model or variation. And it was kind of described as a cast iron pineapple. Um, so if you, know, if you kind of think of your stereotypical grenade, here's what it looks like. Same thing. And it actually could be fitted to the end of a rifle and could be fired a lot farther distance, which um, kind of interesting concept. And, hey, let's talk about America for the first time in this podcast, or the last one for that matter. Um, America came up with the MK1 and the MK2, uh, and these were very similar to the French design. Um, it actually took the French design, which looks similar to the British design, and improved on it. Um, we changed the cast iron design for um, a better fragmentation. We also added a bigger safety lever, and we nicknamed it the foolproof grenade. So... Um, all countries had variations of these grenades, and actually they uh, had different kind of versions that could be fragmentation ones that would, you know, shatter into little pieces that would fly everywhere and hurt lots of people. Um, gas grenades at some point, um, phosphorus grenades, which were incendiary, which means they would, you know, start fires, essentially, and defensive blast grenades, which are just basically big booms, big explosions. Um, another one... Uh, that we're going to talk about, sorry, moving on from grenades, uh, other weapon of war would be submarines. And um, this was used mostly by the Germans, um, at least most notoriously used by the Germans. And these are called U-boats or underwater boats, U-boats. And just to give you an idea, at the beginning of the war, Germany had um, around 20 operational U-boats uh, that could go in its high seas fleet. And as the war progressed, they built more and more and more, and they became much more complex. And, um, you know, these, these could be very, very beneficial. And Germany saw this as like, man, these are great fighting commerce. Because if you remember, Britain is an island nation, and they depend on a lot of uh, imports and boats coming in with different supplies. So um, they decided that the Germans decided that, hey, we can, um, we can kind of cut off some of these supplies and starve them out. So they decided to kind of blockade um, you know, the Germans. Um, I'm sorry, mix up there. So the Germans decided to kind of blockade and keep away all the ships from going to Britain. The British tried to do the same to Germany. Um, so basically keep away all trade from each, each other. And it really hurt Britain because they were an island nation. And since we're talking about U-boats, let's talk about the most famous one of them all, U-20. This was a German U-boat that sank the Lusitania, which was a cruise ship, a British cruise ship. And we'll go into this much more when we get into U.S. history, but U-20 fired one torpedo at the Lusitania. And the reason they, they did this is like, well, why would you attack 
a cruise ship. Well, they thought that this cruise ship might have some, like, weapons that were being smuggled in the base of the ship being sent from America to Britain. <gasps> Turns out it's true. But anyhow, uh, this one torpedo that they fired at Lusitania, it hit, and it caused an explosion, and the Lusitania started to list or lean 15 degrees to the starboard or right side. Now, the interesting thing was there was a second explosion, and people theorized that this second explosion was because of the explosives or bombs and guns and so forth that were hidden underneath the ship that were being transported. Anyhow, um, because the ship was leaning, it was very difficult for them to drop their lifeboats. Um, they had 48 lifeboats, lifeboats, but only six of them were dropped, and the whole thing sank in 20, uh, I'm sorry, 18 minutes. My numbers are getting crossed on me. Anyhow, there was 1,198 passengers that died, including 124 Americans, and this really made America angry. And this is one of the reasons America starts getting kind of pushed towards going to war. Um, so, and um, just kind of giving you a little idea of some numbers here. Remember those 20 U-boats we said? By the end of 1915, about 855,000 tons of shipping had been lost to just... Now, during this time that, that all the shipping had been lost, uh, only 20 U-boats had been sunk. Now, like I said, they were building more and more U-boats once they found out how effective they were. Now, Germany was trying to keep the peace with America. Like I said, we're kind of slowly talking about America here. Um, they made this deal called the Sussex Pledge, which was a promise um, made in 1916 um, by Germany to the United States that said, hey, look, when it comes to our naval warfare policy as far as using U-boats and so forth, we will not target passenger ships like the Lusitania, um, merchant ships, uh, would not be sunk until um, the presence of boats had been established, basically meaning, hey, look, we're here, we're going to kill you, so we'll give you a warning. And, um, you know, we might even need to do a search ahead of time of your ship. So it's like, we'll surface, we'll warn you, we'll search your ship, we'll make sure that all of you guys get into, you know, safety boats and so forth, and then we'll sink your ship. I mean, I mean that's just so nice of them. Um yeah, um, that didn't last for very long because the Germans found that, that wasn't very effective because sometimes they would surface and the other boats would be like, hey, we're taking off. Um, so in February of 1917, Germany was like, hey, yeah, remember that Sussex Pledge thing? That We don't want to do that anymore. Um, so anyhow, this uh, this they declared unrestricted U-boat warfare, meaning they have no restrictions anymore. They'll do whatever they want with their U-boats. They'll kill as many as they want. So to give you an idea of how effective these U-boats were, during all of World War I, there was only 375 U-boats. But they sank 188 U.S. ships. Okay, that's low. But here's the other end of the spectrum. They sank 3,703 British ships, 799 um, Norwegian ships, 764 French ships, 680 Italian ships. And those are just the top four there I put the United States into. There are so many more that they sank. It's ridiculous how effective they were. At the end of the war, the German high command called back the uh, the U-boats. And they're like, yeah, we lost the war. you got to come back. The U-boats were like, what do you mean we lost the war? We're kicking butt out here. So anyhow, that's all the stuff with water. Let's start talking about the air. Um so planes being used for the first time in war. Um, planes started off as kind of like reconnaissance or lookouts. They would like fly over and like, hey, look, there's troops over there. But then they started to carry weapons. <laughs> they 
sometimes would throw bricks or grenades or any other object, basically. They even experimented with rope, trying to tangle up their enemy aircraft's propellers. They carried rifles and guns of all kinds. And eventually they started to mount machine guns um, on the front of their planes. And they actually had to synchronize the firing of the machine guns so they wouldn't shoot off their own propellers sometimes. Um, and it was actually um, the Germans who showed superiority when it came to flight. Um, the most notable like aircraft battle was called Bloody April. And this was the RFC, Royal Flying Corps, um, that suffered the most particular heavily losses, and that was British. Um, they actually lost three times as many as the Imperial German Army uh, Air Service, known as the Lustrecraft. Yeah, I'm not sure on my pronunciation there. And the most famous um, flying ace of the time was Manfred Elric Verhaven von Richthofen, better known as the Red Baron. He was the most successful flying ace of World War I, officially credited with 80 combat victories, but people theorized it could be as high as 100. Um, and he painted his plane red because he wanted to stand out. Um, and after every victory, he, um, he would order a silver cup engraved with the date of the flight and the type of enemy he shot down uh, from a jeweler friend he had in Berlin. Um, and he continued this tradition, tradition up until 60 cups, um, but then the supply of silver was uh, blockaded and Germany was restricted. So um, the Flank Circus um, <laughs> was his group. So in January of 1917, he assumed command of the Jasta 11, which was a flying squadron. He trained many of the men himself, and they also started painting their planes, and they got that nickname, the Flying Circus. So um, kind of interesting. Well, um, the Red Baron didn't last forever. On the 6th of July, uh, this would have been um, 1918, Richthofen uh, sustained a serious head wound. He was grounded for several weeks. Um, it caused uh, some lasting damage, some headaches and so forth. Um, and uh, so he was, he was killed later on at 11 a.m. on the 21st of April 1918. And Canadian Captain Arthur Roy Brown was originally credited with his kill. However, the bullet entered at a weird angle, like from the right armpit to the left front side, which mean, meant that it kind of like came up, which is weird for another plane to fire from a down, you know, up from an, like, underneath angle. So they figured that Sergeant Cedric Popkin was the person most likely to have killed him, and he was an anti-aircraft gunner. Um, and the reason that's significant is because um, the Red Baron is still undefeated in the air. It took someone on the ground to take him down, because no one could beat him in the air. Think of it as a propaganda thing. Um, so just to give you an idea of the other flying aces, um, a Frenchman, René Fonck, um, had 75 victories. A British uh, Empire fighter pilot, Mick Manock, uh, had around 65 to 73 kills. And Canadian Billy Bishop had 72. And uh, just to give you uh, one last little aircraft thing here, um, Zeppelins, also known as like blimps or dirigibles, were also used um, during, during war, but not as extensively as aircraft it's uh the other aircraft we mentioned so we're going to stop there for this part of world war one 
Uh, I'm going to get into another um, area of World War One coming up here in our next podcast when we start talking about some of the political entities and the propaganda war of World War One and a couple of the battles type stuff information. So um, I hope you enjoyed this, and I will see you for the next podcast.